The wheel of time turns and ages come and pass, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. Welcome to Through the Glass Columns, a Wheel of Time read-along podcast. Each week, we will be reading, discussing, and digesting a small selection from Robert Jordan's fantasy opus. This quest is led by Tyler, a true Wheel of Time warrior. I have all stories, ages that were and that will be. And I'll be joined by Greg, a complete novice to the Wheel of Time. The Wheel of Time and the Wheel of a Man's Life turn alike without pity or mercy. Join us each week as we read the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time, traveling deeper and deeper through the glass columns. But what does that even mean? No, 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 no. no. You don't get to find out yet. (laughs) Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Through the Glass Columns, your weekly Wheel of Time read-along podcast. I, of course, am Tyler, your host who loves all things Wheel of Time, including, and don't tell this to the WGA because I'm mad at them, the new season of television. Uh, I'm not mad at the WGA. I'm mad at the people who aren't paying the WGA. Uh, Greg, I have now talked way too much about all of the things in an introduction that should only probably take five seconds. You should take over for me. Hello, everybody. Uh, I was chuckling to myself about the energy because this is no shade on Tyler, but we just logged on our Zoom call and he's like, hey, how are you? Things are fine. Yep, yep, yep. And then it's like, hello. I was like, all right. Like He brought his A game for once the microphones are on. So yeah, not for uh, you. Come on. No, no. Content over friendship. I've said this from the start and we will maintain that rule. So, um, you know, it's funny. I am not a participant in Wheel of Time world from the get go, but um, I'm starting to sense how much of a phenomenon this is and no greater sign than what I sent you earlier this week, which is I had an Arby's ad served to me on Instagram that was advertising, I believe, the meal of time and wanting yep. you to get curly fries to celebrate the uh, way in which the wheel turns. So, hey, uh, good on you, RV social marketing team. <laughs> hey, I'm talking about it. So clearly it's working. So. There's something really <laughs> weird about loving something that when I was a child would have gotten me punched in the face for mentioning it. And now Arby's <laughs> is tweeting about it. Like, I don't understand what has happened to the world in the last. 20 years, but I'm excited about it. Um, And speaking of things that I'm excited (laughs) about, I actually wanted to get your thoughts just up top about these three chapters that we read, because I found myself as I was reading them thinking, I am liking this so much more than last week, and I'm not sure there's that much different. And so I'm curious if you had the same reaction of thinking this just kind of worked better than the previous week, even though it's kind of the same characters doing the same kind of exposition-y, advance the plot sort of stuff. Did you have that same reaction? Um, I did. I uh, especially, I would even say it escalated as the chapters went on. Like the first one was fine and then it got a little better and then it got uh, a lot better. Um, I had one of our listeners uh, reach out uh, through my wife and said, uh, tell Greg, there's a really good Matt chapter coming up. And I'm I'm actually not positive what she just heard versus, this is Catherine. Thanks, right. Catherine, for reaching out. Uh, what she just heard versus what we've just read. But I will say the third chapter this week, I was like, this is a really good Matt chapter. So I think we're on the same page or else I should have appreciated the previous one where he dueled that guy more. But uh, 
I or think we're on the upswing and it could keep going. Like this might not have been yeah, the best of the match chapters. Let's be very clear. Uh, <laughs> but no, I mean, I think that to some degree, if what we were feeling at the beginning of the book was yay, Perrin, this plot is moving great. And then we had kind of a dip in the Egwene and Nynaeve and Elaine maybe needed more setup than we have a taste for. It's really nice to have Matt who like wakes up from a coma, beats up a couple of pretty boys and then immediately tries to escape the city and goes gambling. I know we are crossing streams a little bit for the introduction, but it's just a breath of fresh air compared to a lot of the stuff that we've gotten before it. Uh, any last thoughts overall before we start getting into this chapter by chapter? Um, just as an enlightened modern man, I actually like the woman chapters, unlike you, apparently. God, Tyler, wow. Uh, way to just... I've, I've seen Barbie 10 times, and everybody should call me the Alan of this podcast from now on, so... <laughs> <laughs> clearly you are a better Start ally than Let's i go. am that's that sounds accurate uh <laughs> chapter 28 a way out uh matt is enjoying an absolutely enormous meal when the three girls arrive uh Nynaeve, uh initially is kind of worried about matt she feels his head um he flinches away and she uh, uh matt basically says um he is nervous around Nynaeve now in a way that he never had been simply because she has the ring. And then he notices that both Egwene and Elaine have their rings for the first time that he's seen it. Um, he makes a joke that his dad used to tell about how when three pretty women are in the same room, trouble is not is sure to follow. The girls are not very Sounds happy like about this. Sounds like a joke this. Tyler would like. Ooh. hey <laughs> Sorry, go on. Also true. I did think it was pretty funny. Uh <laughs> We get kind of a, a bunch of different attempts by the girls to win Matt over. It seems like Elaine is trying to appeal to his sense of honor, and Nynaeve is trying to flatter him and get him thinking of them positively. And Egwene basically just says, like, look, the way to deal with Matt is to be very direct with him. Um, Elaine eventually asks Matt to carry a letter to her mother in Camelin. Uh, He asks what he'll get out of it. Um, and Egwene basically ends up saying that Matt will do nothing without something to make it worth it for him and Nynaeve uh, kind of tries to get him track give and eventually realizes the only way to give Matt what to get Matt to carry this letter is to give Matt what he wants, which is a way out of Tarvalon. So after a little bit of discussion, and we learned that the girls did in fact get two letters, and so only one of them is going to Matt, uh, they eventually give Matt one of the two letters they got from the Amerlin, essentially giving Matt Cawthon, the man who dropped the Horn of Valir, the authority to do whatever he wants anywhere in the world. That seems like a horrible decision, and the girls are happy with it and immediately leave. <laughs> That sounds like a chapter that sets up fun stuff, even if itself I only had two stars noting what I wanted to talk about. It's slight, it's quick, <laughs> but it works for me. What did you think here? Yeah, I'm going to jump to the end immediately. Why not just walk him to one of the exits of the yep. city and be like, let this man go. Here's a letter saying you have to do what I say, and I say let this man go. It just seemed like... I don't know. Like it, I'm not going to be a, a YouTuber saying plot hole or whatever, but right. it just seems like better planned. Right. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I thought they were being a little crazy. <laughs> admittedly, as someone who was once 17 and had money, saving half of that money for anything was not something that entered my mind. So I can kind <laughs> of see how Nynaeve and Elaine and Egwene would end up here. But 
No, I think you're absolutely right. This is not a plot hole in any way, but it is definitely a decision that every reader is going to look at and go, oh, my God, what horrible things are going to follow from this. Right. (laughs) I think it was uh, like last week you referred to this as Chekhov's letter. Well, I don't know if the trigger has been pulled, but boy, are they close to it at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess I just want to hear do you have any thoughts about what you think is coming out of this? Do you know how this is going to go sideways yet? Or are you just looking forward and getting your popcorn out? Yeah, there's definitely a shot in Freud aspect to this where it's like, yeah, you gave it to somebody who's not even seemingly in his right mind. Yeah. And it's like, how many times can it be abused? Like then for all I know, the next 13 books are just him using this over and over again. I mean, it certainly would not hold its power outside the city. So while we have him seemingly working his way to the city, but I guess that's part of tonight's discussion. Um, you know, it seems like once he heads towards Camelin, then it would diminish in power as it goes on. Yeah. Um, but yet at the same time, it does seem um really uh I don't even I don't want to say like nerve-wracking because that overplays it, but it's like, oh boy, here we go. Um, and and certainly not the move I would have made with the letter. Yeah, and I think if we're then thinking about this as a, a chapter that kind of A, gives Matt a time bomb, and that's just a fun thing for a character to have. I think the Mm -hmm. other thing that it does is it gives us a really interesting, both kind of internal sketch of how Matt is thinking of himself, but also just a little bit of a feel for like what Matt's moral compass is and what makes him tick, right? To some degree, getting a character to make a complicated decision and have you think through all of the pros and cons of it is a really good way to get you a feel for what they think of as a priority and what they don't. And what stood out for me in this in this chapter with Matt is two things. One, Matt could very easily be read as being like selfish in some way, right? He refuses to do anything for Elaine unless he gets some benefit out of it. But then two, he also seems to have kind of an enormous amount of honor. When Elaine suggests that he might break his promise, he is massively offended. And even Nynaeve, who basically approaches this entire conversation with the tone of, Matt, you're stupid, let me tell you what to do, even she defends him and says, like, look, when Matt promises to do something, he always follows through. And so I think that kind of setup of a character who both now has the kind of means to cause problems and the personality to cause them, this this seems like a winning combination for me, at least for the rest of the book. Uh, I certainly agree with that. And and this is now turning into my favorite plotline after not really caring that much about Matt for so long, other than not wanting him to die, but, yeah. but you know, wanting th- that to be resolved. I guess my hesitation in completely agreeing with you is um, personal distaste of your character. But other than yeah. that, uh, also just, uh, no, uh, also just, um, I'm still not clear on how much Matt is in the driver's seat. Yeah. And there was a, I, I, what I understood as a new kind of hint in this one, which is, uh, I believe he gets the letter and starts humming pocket full of gold and it's like he's like it it says something along the lines of like he realized he was humming pocket full of gold now or or something like that and so i'm like i don't think i don't think you're in the driver's seat buddy i think there's something older here so when you're making these comments about matt and his honor i everything you said is in the pile of matt is actually honorable this is how they remember matt um 90 even Egwene only know matt 
But I'm also in the place of like, I think this is the new character coming through, right? Like yeah. the, and I understand it's it's always both. It's not right. one or the other necessarily. But um, to say like, oh, well, what are we learning about this this old blood character? We're learning uh, doesn't trust the Aes Sedai, is desperate to find mm-hmm. a way away from them, uh, and uh, a gambler, but seems to have strong honor. And, and I think yeah. that, could be why Matt has always been honorable. Um, what comes to mind, uh, just to really ruin this with a terrible reference, are the yeah. Assassin's Creed video games, which has this idea that you can access the memories of your ancestors by having yeah. a machine read your DNA. It's so easy to forget that those are like sci-fi games and not historical epic it, games. It's bizarre. <laughs> I remember renting the first of those games and playing the prologue very confused. Uh yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think that of all of the things you mentioned, the one that really stood out to me, at least kind of in the text of this chapter, um, obviously was the Assassin's Creed video games. Um, but other than that, uh, <laughs> it would be um, Matt kind of pushing back against Nynaeve, even feeling his forehead. And he immediately has a reaction of like, wait a minute, she did this every week when I was growing up. And he kind of the way he phrases it internally is but she didn't have that ring then and that was the moment that kind of rang to me as like oh this might be someone other than Matt because he kind of seems in everything we've read so far as someone who will stick with his friends regardless of what they're doing and this felt like a little bit of a departure from that um other than that like yay good Matt chapter we've literally covered the only two things that I had in my notes as a big point to talk about did you have any other like little moments or or things in this scene that that worked well for you where you wanted to bring up um not really different than what you've mentioned already my uh early chapter since I I was the one who took us straight to the end of the chapter my early chapter note was just that I did think those interactions were nicely written um that he kind of very quickly goes through a few um and it also taught us a bit about um elaine as well Mm because it's like let me go with the honor let me go with the flirty let me right and it's like um there's there's kind of a a fun set of dynamics there um i appreciated that um i think Nynaeve calls him out and says like hey we uh helped save you remember that that should be enough like whatever you need help so so again like you're saying it's tracking what was working and what wasn't working so guilt wasn't working but honor is working well and i think to put this uh it's an interesting contrast to what we saw a few chapters ago when uh suan and also lanfear were talking to matt because we talked about that as being a really interesting chapter because both of those characters were not lying in the way that we expected them to and the interesting thing that's happening here in this chapter is the girls are manipulating matt but they also seem to be openly talking about how they are manipulating matt while they are doing it and that seems like a really odd strategy but it still works for them that was my only other thought here is like saying oh i told you that wouldn't work we should do this instead is a weird comment in the middle of trying to talk someone into doing a favor for you yeah i i think that um i it it's so interesting what I'm struggling with is Matt's becoming so incredibly interesting at this moment when like everybody in the world wants to manipulate him. Yeah. And, um, and it's like, I'm rooting for him not at all to be tied to any of 
them, yeah. right? Um, and so when we're comparing, like you said, back to Suwon, back to um, Lanfear, I guess my biggest fear is that Lanfear is going to win out. But more than anything, I just want him... I, I want him to Kylo Ren. I want him to let the past die and just go off on his own and cause chaos, I guess. So there's my hope in as a lame response to what you asked. That is not a lame response. Anything that lets me make a chaos reigns joke is a solid place for us to be. Um, Fox eating its own intestines or whatever, if you like R-rated movies. That's where I'm going with this. Did, did you actually see Antichrist? <laughs> that's a solid reference. No. If you get okay, you need to. Uh, chapter 29, A Trap to Spring. Uh, Nynaeve is basically grumpy that she has to turn the spit of a cook fire. Uh, we meet Laris, the mistress of the kitchens, who is keeping them working hard and kind of watching over everything going on in the kitchens. And Nynaeve clearly is resenting the way that she's being treated by someone who she sees as below her. Um, Elaine is complaining about how... Uh, I'm sorry, Elaine is just complaining. Uh, and Laris is about to leave and go do something else when the Merlin arrives in the kitchen. She starts inspecting the kitchens all over before eventually arriving to the three girls who we have been following. Um, the Merlin, out of nowhere, starts yelling at Elaine for saying something that she shouldn't have. Um, Egwene doesn't catch on immediately to what is happening and tries to correct the Merlin. Both of those girls are then sent away for punishment along with Laris so that... Um, she can talk specifically to Nynaeve. She says she didn't want to get Egwene in trouble, but it was kind of a dumb thing to talk there. Um, they then kind of exchange information. Um, the uh, a Merlin says she intended to wait longer to reach out, but that news of another dead gray man has reached her. It was found by Sherium. Um, this causes uh, Nynaeve to be suspicious of Sherium, and it seems like um, the... Um, the Merlin doesn't want to dismiss suspicion of Sherium, but later on in the chapter, she does seem to dismiss suspicion of both Elida and then Alana, and explains that some of Alana's odd behavior may be because she is heir felon and they have odd feelings about honor. Um, Nynaeve then tells the Merlin about Elsie's message and how it was helpful, and explains what they found. Um, the Merlin, however, says that she didn't send Elsie, and in fact, Elsie was kicked out of the tower ten days ago, and so couldn't possibly have been uh, involved in what was going on. Um, Nynaeve is then immediately worried that it was one of the Black Aja sisters, possibly Leandrin, who is posing as Elsie, and is worried that anyone they interact with could be one of the Black Aja sisters. Um, the Merlin then asks what are they going to do about the obvious trap that has been set for them. Nynaeve says that their plan is to spring the trap and catch whoever was placing it, and the Merlin offers her gold and whatever she needs for her travels. Um, she then asks if Elaine is going. Nynaeve says yes, and asks why they went through so much trouble to be secret if she knew and the Merlin says well I can't lie so I needed to be able to outright say to Elaine's mother that I didn't have anything to do with this um, as she is leaving she asks if Nynaeve needs anything else and Nynaeve asks her about Kalendor um, she gives us a little bit more information uh, first she says that it is a Sa Angriel and that only two more powerful have ever been made and she also says that only the dragon can take Kalendor but that after it has been taken the dark friends may want to take it from him. Um, finally, she gives her theories about why Tyr is so against channeling, and it is in part because they are so closely tied with Kalendor. Um, and then eventually, uh, Laris returns. The Merlin tells Laris that the mistress of kitchens um, 
moniker will be made permanent. And then Egwene and Elaine return having eaten some soap and are told they are leaving immediately. That was a really long summary. But for me, I think the best of these three chapters, I know you said they got better as they went, but I found this the really intriguing one with just some really cool world building details. Um, I know this is apparently your second most favorite of the three, but what did you think of it overall? <laughs> uh Pretty good. Uh, yeah, I think there's a lot I really like here. I, I was thinking, I mean, I did just get a nice long snooze in slash had my phone start playing something random. Um, so apologies if that uh, popped in, disrupted your rhythm. Um, so uh, I think to me that this strikes me as one of those chapters that's very plot heavy. Like mm -hmm. we had to catch up on everything that's been happening. And if I had a feeling as I left it, it was that it all seemed a little too easy. Um, everything worked out the way the girls wanted it to. The The Amarillan seat is like totally satisfied with how things are going. Um, and even though there was some misgivings about the way the trap was set up, it was like there weren't any serious questions. So that all gave me this kind of uneasy feeling because if it's all working that easily, then something they're missing something essentially. Yeah. And I think that's what works for me in this chapter is it feels like what we are doing is we are trying to check all of the boxes. And I find myself simultaneously kind of intrigued by some of the details we get about some of the preparations that the girls are making. But then for me, as you're saying, the more interesting piece is to figure out what are they missing and what is it that is kind of the, the gaps between um, the clues that they're deciphering, right? One of the interesting things that's worked multiple times in this plot line. So so far is the girls finding something in the absence of data as opposed to the actual data they have. And I kind of find myself trying to play that game throughout this chapter. I think I just said what you did three times in a row, but slightly different every time. <laughs> but I'm going to give myself credit because I said it a lot. Typical man. Jeez, look at that. Uh, um, Yeah, so I think when all that happens, that's when I start to feel like I'm not prepared for this, right? Like there's a way in which when everything goes pretty much how I expect it to, I'm like, that means I'm behind the the loop. And, and I, I'm saying me, meaning me personally, not projecting, but also like first time readers. Like I feel mm -hmm. like there's something here I'm not supposed to be able to figure out. And I'm assuming you are seeing some obvious patterns about things they're missing and things that will come around to bite them as a misinterpretation or some such. I think that is 100% no accurate. Um, and <laughs> the best way that I can handle chapters like this is to say, why don't we talk about five things that jumped out to me? And one of them is probably related to the thing that I'm seeing, but I won't tell you which. Um, so okay. the first thing that really jumped out to me in this chapter is just the fact that we get a brand new character in the form of Laris, and she does get a weirdly large amount of description for a character who is just completely out of the blue and doesn't seem like she's going to be playing a super important role. We learn about um, her title, we learn about how she runs the kitchen, and then at the end of the chapter, we also learned that she stuck up for the girls and insisted that they shouldn't be worked as hard as they had been for as long as they have been. So it's, it's a really interesting character portrait, even though it's of the woman who runs the kitchen at the school that the girls are always running away from. 
I mean, what did Downton Abbey teach us? But that they have interested, complicated lives downstairs too, you arrogant aristocrat, you sitting in your second floor apartment, I think, third floor apartment. Third. <laughs> oh, even more so. That's right. <laughs> if this is not the canceled Tyler episode, I don't know what is. Um, uh, yes. And I think the problem I have in like spending all my time trying to grow attached to her is that there's this code of suspicion on literally everybody. And yeah. there are reminders this chapter that do not trust any of them. And, you know, even when the Amerlin seed is saying, I love Sherium, the girls naive, I should say, in particular yeah. in this case is like, I don't know about the Sherium. <laughs> I don't, yeah. I don't trust her. Why do we trust her? Why is she above reproach? Um, So I think any kind of attachment I would form to Laris is filtered through that. And I'm like, I don't know, like, is she being nice to them to cozy up because she's figured out this? And yeah. I, you know, I think of the old friends cliche of they don't know, we know, they know, we know, right? Yeah. And it's it's like I, I find myself going cross-eyed thinking through a lot of these uh, interrelationships. All that being said, I don't disagree. It's a cool new character. It There is something to the fact that she's expressing sympathy, which is how we feel for them, yeah. even though we understand the game at play um a similar character beat to that is just the opening which i really liked in some ways it it felt like let's just get this down to naive and uh suane just to simplify things but yeah. i liked the character beat of Egwene totally not getting it yeah. um and being too naive to understand oh i'm supposed to to act in this way and then we'll get isolated um and i thought it was really great that naive knew exactly what was going on every beat of that yeah, and I think that's a really great kind of reversal for those two characters, right? Because typically Nynaeve is the one who kind of goes off half-cocked and Egwene is the one who's kind of thinking things through and has to slow that kind of temper of Nynaeve's down. So it's really fun to see Nynaeve play the politics game well and Egwene drop the ball because usually that's kind of the opposite of how it functions. The tiny little detail at the beginning of the chapter that I loved is the fact that the... Uh, the White Tower apparently uses spit dogs, which are a breed of dog <laughs> that no longer exists. But in like the 1700s in England, they would put them in wheels and they would run to spin your rotisserie chicken or whatever. I learned about this when I was in London on a tour of something. So I need to tell you about it on a podcast. That's how this works. We disseminate information. Bring back spit dogs. Bring back spit dogs. Uh, I'm all in. Uh my family uh, is probably going to adopt a dog this fall, so I'll see if there are any spit dogs available. Also, Excellent. I'll need to remodel our kitchen, I think, <laughs> in uh, order to put one to use. But <laughs> Other than spit dogs, which we need to talk about for another 20 minutes, obviously, <laughs> um, I think the next thing that was interesting to me is something you had kind of vaguely mentioned that I wanted to shine a little bit more of a light on, which is... Uh, Suwon dismissing the kind of concerns that Nynaeve has about Sherium, Elida, and Alana. And each of them, it seems like, is kind of for a different reason, right? Elida, there's no reason to suspect her other than she's a giant jerk and could have seen the list of the Black Aja. Sherium uh, is probably, to me, the most suspicious at this point, if for no reason other than that she has now been around two dead gray men at odd times. And so that link makes me kind of start 
to think about things. And then Alana, I think we get the best explanation of why we shouldn't be suspicious. She wasn't doing anything odd. Uh, she was actually just being as prickly and honorable as she typically is. But all three of those are characters that we've gotten kind of like some vague mentions of and a lot of reasons to both think they might be in the Black Aja and to think they might not be. So I didn't know if any of those kind of new clues or, or hints stood out to you or if it was just kind of in the same way as Laris. Like, I can't pay attention to this. This is a next book problem. Uh, oh, man, I don't want it to be a next book problem. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, I do think where I tend to come down on that is where I was. I'm, I'm basically always moving the opposite way as the characters, mm -hmm. right? So as the characters dismiss them as suspects i'm like they're definitely suspects now yep. and and it's a little trickier here i i think broadly speaking the uh swan is is dismissing them so naive is leaning more into them and yep. so that kind of splits my own emotions but i tend to stick alongside naive just as the more familiar character um yep. even though that's a bit foolish because you know the amarlincy is supposed to be so much smarter and runs this place and so on so um there is there's that dynamic at play um, yeah. too. I did think the the fact that Cherium killed another gray man is just like such a out of left field thing to happen. Not off killed screen. another gray man, found a dead gray man in oh. her bed. That's so much worse. <laughs> so it's like the Godfather, basically, except a yeah. uh, full person. Um, uh, and this one was a woman. So we are, we yeah. say gray man, but it was a woman. Um, gray man is the title. Um, and so I think when something happens that far off screen, it's mm -hmm. like, did this happen at all? Like, yeah. let's let's see the paperwork on this. So uh, that one felt a little bizarre to me. But at the same time, we now know there are people operating inside the the uh, castle just totally beyond their powers. And I don't know if this is the next thing on your list, but I'm sure you want to note that I was half right on Elsie. I had yep. come down on Elsie not being in her right mind, that she was under Lanfear's control. But we get something entirely different, which is, no, somebody was impersonating or wearing the face of Elsie. So yep. it's even more powerful and even beyond. Yep. Um, and I think I'm I'm chalking that up to Lanfear. We've had yep. these hints that she can be whoever she wants and do whatever she wants. We've had her moving through spaces way too easily. So it seems like this is what's happening. Yeah, this was the thing that jumped out to me as the not really a plot hole, like you were saying in the last chapter, but kind of felt like a plot hole as I was like, wait a minute, Nynaeve, the story you have recently heard is Egwene was chasing Elsie, went around the corner and found a woman who you've never seen before. Yeah, it's definitely Leandrin who was behind all of this. Like, it, it seems <laughs> like an odd leap to say it must have been one of the Black Aja mm -hmm. instead of that woman that Egwene talked to in the hallway. But other than that, like, I think this is is a really kind of fascinating reveal. It does a really good job of making us question how we got where we're going. And then obviously it immediately makes us go, oh, wait a minute, is this uh, kind of supposed trap that has been set up was that set up by the black aja or was it fake set up by um lanfear right because we also learn in this chapter that suan says that uh, all of the belongings of the black aja were destroyed so mm -hmm. it's not entirely clear whether that happened before or after nine even the girls inspected the belongings of the black aja 
I understood that it had happened before, or at least that's how I interpreted it. Is, is I was like, okay, so it wasn't just fake Elsie; it was a total fake setup. So, so the way I interpreted it is, Landfear has now like set up a fun escape room for the girls, <laughs> uh, and they went through it and found that all the clues led to Tear, and that's where we'll go now. Um, so it did. I mean, both of these facts just made me take pause and say, all right, I think land fear is far more powerful than I had imagined before. You know, it, she just has a, such a happy, positive name. It's easy to forget that she might be kind of scary. <laughs> uh, to me, then, the really interesting thing is just how quickly Suan is just like, yeah, okay, go into the trap and potentially die, all three of you. She is all on board on this. And it's this really yeah. interesting dynamic of... We've been in her head. We know she is not of the Black Aja. She has in her head said, I want to hunt them down. But I cannot trust her in this scene. Not even a little bit. Mm. No part of me believes that she has the best interest of these girls in mind. And she she even admits it. She outright says, if you are able to stop the dark from getting Kalendor and all three of you die, I'll be happy with that outcome. And so it's a really interesting sketch of the character giving all three of the girls who were in their heads and were excited about, they, they get everything they want in this scene. And I still kind of hate the woman giving them everything they want. And as far as I'm concerned, that means Robert Jordan is writing a pretty good character. Yeah. And, and I think you just nicely articulated what I stumbled to say after your summary of like, it all felt too easy. Um, yeah. Right. Oh, you want to go spring a trap? Yeah. Uh, you know, um, uh, Here's some money. <laughs> here's, yeah. here's a little walking around money for you to go take to do that. Um, what comes to mind, and I recognize that this comparison means I sound suspicious of uh of Swain. Um, I think of Palpatine, Emperor Palpatine from yeah. uh the Star Wars lore, who has just so many plots in motion that he really doesn't care if one yeah. Single piece wins or fall, uh, uh, rises or falls, wins or loses. Um, and so it kind of feels like, um, Suane is the type of person who has a big goal in mind and she will send 10 people after that goal, hoping one of them wins out and makes it through, not really caring if the other nine suffer and die. And I think that there's a kind of familiar archetype of a politician who acts that way, right. Mm -hmm. And it's always kind of a coin flip to me in, uh, you know, generally in fiction. I don't really read fantasy, as we know, uh, but generally in fiction, whether we are going to end up being like, you know, when you're a leader, that's the burden. And you just have to to be OK with losses to to provide for the greater good. Or this person's a monster and the real heroes need to rise up and reject this and actually defend what they need to defend. So um, I'm in the the coin is literally flipping in the air. I am okay. Leonardo DiCaprio at the end of Inception, seeing if the top falls. But I, I am a little shakier on Swain than I have been previously. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that one of the the moments that really drives this home for me is the way that uh this, that the Merlin is talking about Calendor when Nynaeve asks about it. And before we even talk about Merlin's response or the Merlin's response to this, I just want to note I 
was caught off guard by Nynaeve asking about Kalindor. It's a word that's been thrown around a few times. Nynaeve had learned about it in her dream a couple of chapters ago, but there were so many other things I was expecting her to ask about. And then I found the answer that Suan gives to be A, direct, which seems to just be her MO at this point. She just tells all of the information all of the time, which is a really interesting look for kind of a manipulator, as you were saying. But then also she really highlights the fact that Kalindor seems to be kind of so powerful and so important that it's it almost feels like a nexus in a lot of ways, right? It feels like the Dark Friends have to go there and Rand has to go there and it shaped the politics of the region in such interesting ways. And there is now a literal storehouse of Terangriel in the same place because they're so afraid of the power. Like all of that together, I think it the the sum of the parts of the rumors was a lot bigger than each of them individually. And I think that worked really well for me, I guess, is, is what I'm saying. That was a long-winded way of saying, good job, Robert Jordan, good page. Oh, somebody's complimenting Robert Jordan again. Uh, not at all in disagreement with you. Um, it, you know, again, um, I think of uh, in Star Wars, the character Mace Windu and kind of the books and stuff, he has this force power called um, that he can sense shatter points. Yeah. And that's exactly what you're describing. It's like everything's leading to this nexus. Everything's leading to the shatter point and the fate of all will be decided in that moment. And, yeah. um, you know, Mace can always sense those coming, but as his uh, bad uh, duel in uh, Revenge of the Sith shows us, he doesn't know exactly how to approach them. He can just yeah. sense that it's coming and that it's there. Um, and, you know, I, I think the only thing that concerns me a little bit, why I'm not going to just like, Robert Jordan this, Robert Jordan that, uh, is because um, we've seen this before. We saw this on Toman's Head last book. And so I'm a little nervous that it's like, oh, so we just build to a climax. And like Mace Windu, I don't know what will happen at that climax. I just know the pattern. So um, it makes me a little nervous. But otherwise, I'm for it. Let's do this. Let's uh, see what happens. Yeah, I mean, your description makes me immediately think of uh, one of my favorite fantasy series, which I know you don't read, uh, which is Malazan Book of the Fallen. And in that series, uh, there's this idea of convergence where the author almost gives himself an excuse where at the end of every book, everything converges in one place. And it's like, oh, that's just how the world works. And while we don't have that kind of explicit idea, I think this idea of everyone kind of being drawn to certain places fits really well with this Taviran idea that we've kind of been developing throughout this series so maybe that's why it doesn't bother me quite as much but i agree with you kind of the idea of every book ends in a big climax where all of the characters are suddenly together that can get a little draining if it's happening in every single book and it kind of looks like we're going to be three for three assuming the stone of tear is where we end up as as it appears at the moment um other than that my last notes on the chapter were the country of Tear and their weird relationship with channeling was kind of interesting. And then, yay, Laris is the mistress of the kitchen for real. Though I don't know if either of those need further comment from you, but that's what I had at the end of the chapter. Uh, yeah, good chapter. Um, you know, I think it definitely led me to just anticipate, let's go do this. Um, and like you said, like, yeah, if everything's going to Tear, or tear. I'll keep going back and forth. I don't care. Just ask ask my dark fiends about it. Really uh, weirdly, it's tear, <laughs> but if you are describing someone, they become Terrans. 
So you're kind of right both ways. I prefer to be wrong. Uh, so, uh, yeah, good chapter. It, very much anticipating, like, let's get this underway. Um, and so uh, I think we've talked before. This was my experience of the Game of Thrones books, which, again, I don't read fantasy books, is that if it's a good chapter with a character, you immediately get disappointed it's not another one with that character. Now, I believe Game of Thrones never repeats two in a row. Uh, but, um, you know, the fact that we switch back to Matt, which is where at the end of the first chapter, I really wanted to keep going with Matt. And then we switch to Nynaeve and I'm disappointed it's not further yeah. with Nynaeve. Um, yeah, things are, the game is afoot. Let's uh, let's see what happens next. So talk, talk to me about chapter 30 and I'll take a little nap. Dude, you had the game and we have the first toss and that was the transition yeah. you give me. Oh, that's rough. Okay, chapter 30, the Although first toss. I think toss. technically that's the other kind of game, right? The game oh, is right. afoot. Isn't that, isn't that like the foxes out? I don't know. Continue. <laughs> uh, so Matt spends his day planning how he is going to escape the city, and he also begins collecting extra food for his journey. He basically asks for extras at every meal and then stows it rather than eating it. Um, Anaya checks in on him. He mentions that he is going to go out, and she clearly thinks that he is going to try to escape, but thinks he will not be able to do so. And Matt basically takes advantage of that feeling. He does not hide at all that he is planning on running away. He packs his bags. He makes sure that it is obvious that his clothes are with him and he is seen by many many eyes to die on his way out of the tower which is perfect for him because they all assume that he will be gone for a few days because he's at an inn and not because he has actually run away um so Matt then finds an inn. He decides he's going to start gambling so that he uh, will have enough money to make his way to Camelin, and he wins every toss. Um, after winning uh, quite a bit at one bar, he tries to go somewhere else. A sea folk tries to get him to continue playing with him, so he gets dragged to another bar to keep playing, and he keeps winning. And then he goes to another inn and keeps winning, and so on and so forth. Uh, Matt, uh, at this point, stops just winning every toss and starts throwing the perfect toss on every toss. Um, he is told by someone that he has the Dark One's own luck, and Matt reacts very poorly to that. He seems to be um, almost like incensed at that phrase being associated with him. Um, he then leaves the bar that he is at and goes into an alley, uh, wondering how he's won so much. He's actually won so much he's had to go to money lender or money changers multiple times to turn all of his silver coins into gold ones. Um, but then he realizes that he is being followed. And there are uh, multiple uh, people in the alleyway who have knives who are clearly looking for them. Um, first, he loses them and makes his way up onto uh, the roof of a nearby building. Uh, he tries to get a bit further, but then realizes there is a bridge that he can't get across from the roof. So he jumps down and then is attacked by one of the men with the dagger. He pushes them both off the bridge and hopes that they will land with the other man on the bottom. They do, but they also land with a knife in that man's chest. Matt, for a second, thinks about how lucky he is and then realizes it's not actually lucky to be standing next to a dead man in a dark alley and goes into the nearest inn, the woman of Tanchico, which, given the name of the next chapter, we're going to stay with Matt. Hooray. Um, I know at the <laughs> beginning of the episode, you mentioned this was your favorite of the three chapters. Um, I found it both the kind of breeziest and most fun and also possibly the one that i had the least to say about just because it's like he goes to an <laughs> inn he wins and then he goes to an inn and he wins um so i guess i'm curious what kind of 
intrigued you about this chapter? Because it seemed like you were really taken by it. Um, I like gambling and uh, no, um, I I think you said the word that made it stand out to me, which was fun. And yeah. there hasn't been a lot of fun in this book. There's been good intrigue, good stuff to learn, good world building, blah, 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 blah. But it was just nice to have it be super fun. And so uh, it definitely reminded me of uh, in the Harry Potter books, a fantasy book series uh, by a problematic woman, uh, but a good book series all the same. Um, yeah. uh, there what? Well, there's a chapter or a, I think it's a few chapters where there's a, a luck potion um, mm -hmm. and there's a time when one character believes they've taken the luck potion and they have not. Uh, but then the one character actually takes it. And um, it's just this kind of really light, fun thing. Like, what if the world just went 100 percent your way? It's it's kind yeah. of like a, a very juvenile fantasy, uh, especially in a Harry Potter book. But like. Um, I feel like cartoons and sitcoms and, you know, I think of like Disney afternoon shows. I think they've all done something like this. Like, what if yeah. what if you had the luckiest person in the world and, and let's all just kind of live in that fantasy? And so it was really fun. And, you know, I think if I had a, a takeaway question, because I agree, I actually don't have a lot to say about it other than I had a lot of fun. It is like who's in the driver's seat of Matt, because yeah. it sure, sure seems like he is not thinking through his choices and that also resonates with the harry potter thing because harry when he has the potion he'll say something like oh i just i feel like a walk outside and that bumps yeah. him into the character he needs to bump into or things like that yeah and i found the really interesting thing kind of related to that is the difference between the first section of the chapter and the latter section of the chapter because when matt is in the tower it feels like he kind of is in the driver's seat right he's thinking through things he's processing what anaya is saying and how he can use it he makes this very conscious decision that if everyone's going to think you're an idiot act like an idiot because then they will all let you do whatever you want thinking you can't actually get away from them that all felt to me like Matt in the driver's seat doing all of the things that Matt normally does. And then he starts winning at every toss and suddenly he's recognizing different lyrics of a song. He's humming things to himself based on the context. He's taking risks. And at one point he even says it's time to toss the dice and someone gives him a really weird look. I can almost guarantee he said that in the old tongue. So there's a lot of hints in the second half of this chapter that something has changed as he starts getting into this gambling mode. And I think you're right to highlight that. But um, if we're kind of drawing the contrast between the first and second half, I found the first half of the chapter to actually be really fun of Matt just being like, how can I get out of the tower? Act like I'm an idiot. It just worked for me. Yeah, the comp I'll give to the first half of the chapters. I actually thought a lot about Knives Out. Um, there's a, a funny kind of perspective play somewhere in the first third of Knives Out, or maybe it's in the second, it's in the middle third, uh, but um, where all the family members in the family in Knives Out are saying how they happen to observe this and that. And yeah. then when you see, we assume the true version, Marta is like screaming out like look at the time it's already midnight and i'm just leaving and yeah we see how she entirely played the family in this kind of subterfuge bit and i'll i'll leave it vague enough although if people haven't seen knives out don't be listening to our podcast go watch knives out and uh, yeah. have a much better time yeah it's not often <laughs> i tell someone turn off my podcast but like that's more important <laughs> go do that first and then come back yeah.
<laughs> um, so I did feel that way. However, where I will differ from you, because I apparently am in a disagreeing mood tonight, is I did recall that this this other identity of Matt's is mm. a battle commander. Mm, and so it yeah. felt a little like strategy to me too. So as I basically am trying to acquaint myself with this character, I was asking more questions in the first half. Like, is this the strategist coming through? Yeah. And that's a familiar military style figure where it's somebody who's brilliant on the battlefield, but then, you know, when you're in the bar or, you know, in the, the disreputable part of town uh, after, after hours, you kind of let loose and go nuts. And it, and it felt a little like that, but yeah. I definitely, while I'm being disagreeable, I agree that Matt is much less in control as time goes on. Um, yeah. And that seems to work out better for him. It's like, yeah. yeah, the less I'm in control, I'll just go with the flow and win and be rich and get to do whatever I want. Yeah, and speaking of winning and be rich, like, what in the world is happening in this chapter? Matt's theory, the best he gives us, I think maybe like two-thirds of the way through the chapter, he thinks something like, I was always a bit lucky, but I never won like this until after I got the dagger. So his hypothesis seems to be this is still somehow tied up in him getting the dagger and that changing something about him. Um, do you have either is that your hypothesis or other hypotheses? Like we we have this theory, I think, at this point about like uh, an old, a past life influencing Matt. And I think that feels right, given what we've seen in previous chapters. But then Matt, I think, complicates that by saying like the timing of it is really weird, though. Yes. Uh, so, and a lot of it isn't just like betting well. It's like actually the dice lands yeah. the way they're supposed to. So uh, two theories. One, uh, and they could be related actually now that I think of this. One, we had a hint last chapter that there is a, or last week, not last chapter. I'm going to forget which one. Sangriel, that is his chapter symbol. Oh, Terangriel. Take Terangriel, that is the six yeah. linked dice that show the proper and so I in that chapter they didn't necessarily say what that does I don't oh, no, think they right? actually did they... say it alters probability and it could create a situation okay. like this or it would be all sixes every time you roll a die and as far as we know that was stolen or that was still there that was Correct. That, that was one of the objects that was taken by the black Asha. Okay, so that actually works well. So some Black Aja slipped this in Matt's bag or somebody slipped it in Matt's bag and he has that thing, yeah. hence his chapter symbol, hence all of that. Um, or the second theory is we just found out last chapter that, um, as I as I so eloquently put it, uh, you know, uh, Lanfear can create uh, escape rooms. Uh, yeah. So she has these powers beyond what we imagined before. So is she shadowing Matt? Is she yeah. controlling this in some way? We know previously her attempts to tempt people were often related to wealth and fame and glory, right? As yeah. I recall. So is this her way of giving him a taste? He certainly seems more susceptible to those temptations yeah. than um, Rand. Uh, so would he give in on that? Um, or, you know, again, as I just alluded to, or just call it both, right? Yeah. She is either not following him, but is the one who slipped it in his bag on his person. So he he has it and it's just obeying his will. Um, I I think those to me feel like the leading candidates for why everything is suddenly going Matt's way. 
Uh, I would just throw in one more, uh, which is the fact that this is actually not the first person in this series who we've heard of rolling sixes every time they roll a dice. Um, in a couple of previous discussions of what Taviran is and how it works, it's been noted that the most powerful Taviran prior to the boys was Arthur Hawkwing, and he would sometimes gamble and never lose. Mm. So I think you were saying two things that could be related. I would say three things that all could be tied together related to each other. But any of those feels reasonable. And that would connect it. He's saying it's been since I had the dagger, but then it could be since he blew the horn, which summoned right. Arthur Hawkwing and potentially has this influence on him. Um, yeah, that, okay. I'll take that third, uh, which means my two were definitely right because that's why you'd raise a third. Definitely, the, definitely. Uh, I have actually done that at least once on this podcast. I need you to know that. I have thrown in a red herring when you were straight up right. Uh, to me, then, the other interesting thing in this chapter, kind of the, the other mystery, I guess, is who are these people who are chasing Matt? Because uh, the clues that we get in the chapter, I don't think suggest that these are gray men. And so it is likely that they are just people. And so I find myself at the end of this chapter thinking, were these footpads who were at attracted by Matt winning? Or was there something deeper or darker going on, right? We know that all of our characters are tied up in, you know, great evil and Baalzaman and all of those things. So to me, I kind of leave this chapter wondering, did Matt accidentally kill a random person trying to rob him or someone who is specifically after Matt Coffin? Uh, I definitely, when reading it, fell more in the camp that I just assumed these were people who were pissed off that they lost a lot of money to him or just saw him. I mean, as you point out, he acted like a fool. So, oh, here's a fool. I can just take all our money back or it's an easy mark. Um, yeah. So uh, I guess that that makes sense what you're saying. And I'll be a little more suspicious that this is uh, somebody targeting him. We know that his description was widely circulated. Yeah. So, you know, if there were people working opposed to the wishes of the Aes Sedai, then it would make it easy to spot him and know it was important to control him. So that yeah. makes sense to me. I'll take it. Other than that, I, I want to compliment the quality and kind of the, the brevity of the action sequence in this chapter. I want to note that uh, Matt overreacts to the phrase, the dark one's own luck, and I have nothing to say about either of those topics. They just need to be mentioned <laughs> on this podcast. Uh, was there anything else in this chapter that really like stood out to you or excited you? Uh, it was just fun. Um, So the meaningless milestone of the week is this group of three chapters took us past the halfway point in yep. my book um and i assume yours or or closely thereabouts yep so uh yeah the kind of light breezy chapter i want as that kind of hit of fresh air and then let's get serious and let's see what happens um uh as a general comment on that fact i just shared i will say this feels like the fastest breeziest book we've read so yeah. far i don't know if that's maybe because we were pulling double duty getting our television episodes out hey everybody go back in the feed and listen to those television episodes prepare yourself for season two of the television show which tyler tells me is quite good and we'll be allowed to watch sooner rather than later at least based on what's aired so far yeah first half uh, has been all the great hunt first half already wow um, so, uh, I, I liked it a lot and it was a great week and, you know, I think I'm starting to understand why you for a book said, uh, let's get rid of Rand. I don't really want to talk about Rand because this yeah. has been a lot 
easier and more compelling as as we get into the as these other ca- characters. Uh, so I'm going to then say that next week, uh, for a bunch of reasons that are boring, we're going to keep things a little on the shorter side and just give people two chapters to read. Um, it is on the shorter side for a two chapter week, but there are boring reasons why it's better to do this now this way. So we have chapter 31, the women, the woman of Tanchico, which, uh, we know is the name of a pub, which my trip to London this summer was all about going to the coolest pub names and why we don't name our bars as well as pubs. I have questions about, uh, and chapter 32, the first ship, which I can only assume is about hoping two women fall in love or two characters, not two women, (laughs) two characters fall in love. And it's the first time we've ever shipped them. Uh, stupid jokes aside, Tyler, take us out. Uh, I, Think that we are getting towards the really exciting part of this book, right? You said this is the fastest and breeziest of the intros. I think that is correct. I think that is why I like the intro of this book more than any of the previous ones. Uh, and I think to some degree, what gets me really excited about this book is A, as you say, we're not in Rand's head. Hooray. Uh, but B, there's just something to uh, this story already having so many kind of world building details in place that it feels like Robert Jordan is now able to kind of be building around them in a way that lets plot and dialogue and all of these things play so nicely together. Uh, I want to leave you with uh, two things. One is an encouragement to go back and watch the uh, television episodes that we recorded. If you haven't so far, they are awesome. Greg already mentioned this, but like I've been listening to them. They turned out really great. Please do. Um, The other thing is a challenge for you, Greg. Uh, You mentioned your love of the name of uh, the pubs and in particular that this next chapter is named after a pub um, challenge for you and all of our uh, fellow readers take a look at your uh, table of contents in the coming week because there is actually another chapter in this book that is named after a pub and I want to see if you can guess it before that chapter comes up uh, I don't think there are any spoilers mm-hmm. anywhere in the chapter titles so you should be safe uh, so I've got a challenge for you which will be fun to do at the beginning of the next episode and we've got two more chapters next week which will continue our kind of light breezy thing and crucially get us towards what I think of as actually this plot moving forward at a really rapid pace that's right it's been slow so far for this book and we will get to the really good stuff next time through the glass columns so ends another episode of through the glass columns we thank you for joining us and continuing with us on our quest to cover all of the wheel of time in our own sweet time This podcast features original content developed by Tyler Orm and Greg Cass and is not in any way affiliated with, associated with, or condoned by the Robert Jordan Estate, Tor Fantasy, or Amazon. All content is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. If you're enjoying this podcast, please seek out the books from your local bookshop or library and join us as we continue our journey. If you'd like to contact us to share your thoughts or give feedback, you can email us at throughtheglasscolumns at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Through the Glass Columns. Thank you once again for being part of this community. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe to the show, leave us a review wherever you're listening, and recommend this show on your social media to help us grow our community. We look forward to welcoming you back next time Through the Glass Columns.